0: following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. You can turn with me if you want to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Uh, We're in Matthew 19 because we're continuing in our series It's called Curious. And what we did is uh, a while back, we asked you for questions. We asked you uh, to hit us with stuff that's on your mind, uh, things that have to do with the intersection of the Bible and culture. And and we do it every couple years because stuff changes and new questions come up or old questions come back up. And so uh, we are kind of knee deep now in this series. We've had a few sermons in it and uh, we're going to continue that today. So We'll anchor ourselves in Matthew 19. Um, So as a summary, okay, of the question we're answering today, I've titled this sermon, What's Up with Polygamy in the Bible? All right. And my intention is uh, for this to be a somewhat short sermon, because I know some of you are like Yogi the Bear, you can't wait to get to the picnic basket. So I I think this will be shorter than normal. But as many of you know, there's sometimes a gap between my intentions around sermon length and the reality. So, I'm going to do my best, but there, I said it. Okay, Uh, so just to be clear, the asker of the question definitely did not seem to be hoping for permission to add either some sister wives or brother husbands Uh, to their family, okay? So I just want to make sure you kind of hear the spirit of the question. It wasn't really to do with that. I don't think that was the motive. Instead, the asker, they rightly identified that there can seem at face value to be kind of an asymmetrical relationship between how the Old Testament describes some polygamous relationships and how the New Testament describes God's design for marriage, uh, that would also kind of the tag along to that would be also what the church has taught on the matter since the church began. Okay, so um, if you want an English translation for that, it seems like sometimes the way the Old Testament deals with the issue is different than the New Testament. That's what I meant by an asymmetrical relationship. Okay, and I could see the potential. If and if you're if you're tempted in this way uh, to possibly write this subject off, just maybe as a, as a curiosity about biblical interpretation without any any current or relevant application, I I would just encourage you to reconsider uh, that position because uh, there has been, in false religions throughout history, but also increasingly in culture today, there's been a push to normalize uh, polyamorous relationships. Okay, So we do need to know if the Bible speaks to this and and then what it says, uh, at least for those of us within the household of faith, uh, but also perhaps for those who would have questions uh, and, are, and are seeking truth in this matter uh, from a godly perspective. And, and some of you could wonder, um, you know, why, why do we care, right? If, if everyone involved, they're consenting adults and no one's being hurt, then, then why can't we just let people love who they want to love and as many people as they want to love? Well, <clears throat> the answer to that is it's different based on who we're talking to all right, if we're dealing with followers of Jesus, okay, then the assumption is, and, and that assumption should be correct, the assumption is that they want to obey the Lord because they love him most of all, okay? So we want to do our best to teach them God's truth on these matters. So that's, that's one part. The other is, if, if we're dealing with someone who's not a follower of Jesus, you know, right off the bat, we're going to have more work to do because, first of all, we have to be able to explain that our goal as Christ followers isn't try to control people or, or make them conform to a moral code because we either despise them or, or we think ourselves better than them. That's not where we're coming from. It shouldn't be. I know there's some that have flown themselves under the flag of being a Christ follower, and that has been their motive, and that makes it harder for those of us not doing that, but we should at least call out the right approach. We have to take the time to explain the gospel shaped the definition of love that we're working from. That's, that's a big issue. And our, our belief that goes along with that, that, that anytime we deviate from God's design for us, it leads to pain and destruction. And so there's, there's a love motivation in discussing this with somebody. And, and I would encourage you that if we're talking about those not following Christ, this, is, this and other issues like it is not something you, you should go out and lead with Uh, in terms of trying to share the hope of the gospel. Uh, If somebody comes to you, though, knowing that you're a Christ follower because your life is exhibiting the fruit of that and they have questions about what the Bible says, then you've got an open door. But I would still encourage you to take the time to establish these kind of base-level caveats so that we all understand where we're coming from. It's important. Um, And... When it comes to our, our, the gospel-shaped definition of love or understanding love from a Christian perspective, and I've, I've, over the years I've, I've thrown out maybe dozens of these types of analogies, but if someone is about to walk through a door and, and you somehow knew there was a bomb that was going to go off when they walked through it, what is the most loving thing to do? Is it to just be quiet because ooh, we're afraid we may infringe upon their autonomous decision or choice to go through the door? I don't think so. I think probably the right thing to do, the most loving thing to do, is say, hey man, there's pain on the other side of that door, whether or not they believe it, even if they think you're crazy for saying it. That's what I think love looks like, okay? Um, We have no problem with people loving lots of people. As a matter of fact, we're commanded to love everybody, okay? Our issue is our understanding of God's design and purpose for sex, Hmm, there's a pin drop moment. Thought it might be, but let's just call it what it is. Okay, because there's a lot of conflation of terms here that leads to confusion. It's it's our understanding of God's design and purpose for sex and how that fits within his design and purpose for marriage. Because they go together, okay? Framing this discussion as followers of Jesus wanting to stop people from loving each other is a bogus starting point, okay? Okay. It rises in large part from the fact that we're working from very def- different definitions for the word love, which is part of why our core values here at Love City Church is we believe God has called us to redefine love to the culture through a gospel lens. It's a starting point for a whole lot of the conversations that we really struggle with. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> we, we do believe, however, that God has a larger and more beautiful purpose for sex than simply physical Uh, the physical and pleasurable aspects of it, and and that his purpose for it can only be fulfilled within the benevolent boundaries of committed covenant relationship, or in other words, marriage, okay? That is where we're coming from. And, And we're gonna anchor our study today in the words of Jesus, because as the religious leaders of his day tried to trip him up with a hot button question about divorce, we get to hear where his thoughts were anchored, when it comes to questions regarding marriage, okay? So Jesus gets hit with this kind of trap question. Where does his mind go? Well, he speaks his mind and we get to look at it. And so it's gonna help us navigate uh, this, this question today, okay? So I hope you found Matthew 19, one through eight. If you don't have an app or a Bible with you, we should have the verses on the screens. If you don't own a Bible, please give us the privilege of giving you one. We'd really like to do that, okay? See us in the Connection Center after the service. Okay, I'm in Matthew 19, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they were no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command and give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, from the beginning, it has not been this way. Praise God for His Word, Amen. So, one really important truth to remember in this discussion and many others is, is this: that Jesus, Jesus is the clearest and most vibrant picture we have of the nature and character of God. And why do I say that? Well, there's there's a couple of verses that say that explicitly. Really. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus, he is the image, he is the image of the invisible God. Okay? Hebrews 1.3, to me, does it even better. It tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Okay? Jesus is the best picture we have of who God is and what God does. Okay? So the way Jesus responds to people, situations, and questions is the answer from God. We don't need to wonder, is there an incongruence between the two of them? In other places, Jesus said, I only do uh, what I hear the Father telling me to do. I only say what he's telling me to say. Okay? There's, there's no disconnect between them. So, so what's the trap here? The Pharisees know that John the Baptist got murdered. Right? got beheaded for checking Herod about his illegitimate divorce. So they knew that worked for him, even though he was pretty popular with some people. Uh, so they're hoping to trip Jesus up with the same issue. They want to get rid of this guy. And there were big cultural debates in that day. Even the rabbis were arguing uh, about whether divorce was permissible, basically for any reason. So there was one big camp, I would say probably the more popular camp of that day, basically had the idea that um, if, if, you know, if your wife burned the falafel, just kick her out, and it's fine. You know, that's it. Which is pitiful, uh, but there was other rabbis saying, no, 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 there's, there's some boundaries around that. Uh, and, and, and it really comes down to sexual immorality is the only reason that you could, you could do that. And so, but the whole debate hinged on the interpretation of Mosaic law in Deuteronomy. However, uh, one verse in particular, however, <laughs> Jesus as he often does, puts everybody in check by going back further than the law, right? They're coming to try to trip him up and he's like, we, you know, they're like, we have this debate and, and they want him to comment on, on the way they frame the debate and he goes, nope, we're gonna go way before that. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about this from a different angle. Uh, he goes back to God's intent and design in the creative order. That's how he answers the question. He goes all the way back to the beginning and he lets them know that the provision in the law that they're arguing about, that was to protect women from being discarded as a result of what? What does he say? The hardness of men's hearts. Okay? God allowed that at that time. But I'm here to tell you, that's, that's not God's best intent. Okay? Now, <clears throat> this is where we see our first clue to deciphering God's will for us in the matter we're discussing today. Uh, and and I, was, I, would, I would tell us it goes beyond the obvious because I would say, what am I saying? Jesus went back to the created order. Jesus went back to what God did in the beginning to answer the question about divorce and, and marriage. Okay, so that, that's where we should go because we're talking about marriage from a different angle, but we should find ourselves in the same place. If that's where Jesus' thoughts were anchored when it came to questions around this, that's where we want our thoughts to be anchored. So, I would say the obvious clue, okay, in answering what we're talking about today, what's up with polygamy in the Bible, that God created one wife for Adam and not multiple, that's telling, Uh, he also established his ideal for marriage between one man and one woman. That is the design, that is the intent we see in God's created order. And it's, I said it goes beyond the, that's kind of the obvious upfront clue, but there's There's another layer, and it's this. We see in God's created order, we see sets of complementary pairs woven throughout the entire creation narrative, okay? What do I mean by that? Well, God creates light and darkness, right? A pair, and they complement each other. We need both for everything to work. He creates heaven and earth, a pair. We need both to make everything work. Okay, the sea and dry land, a complementary pair. Finally, male and female, all complementary pairs. and, And we see a clear pattern in all of that that has profound implications for the way God has ordered things. Okay, there's intention behind all of that. Now, someone might ask, well, that's all very neat, but why don't we just get a direct quote from Jesus on this? That would have been much easier. I agree. Okay, um, but here's some things to consider. Much of the teaching we have recorded from Jesus was in response to questions being brought to him. Okay, that's why we have this teaching on divorce. The Pharisees popped up, said, "Hey, you divorce your wife for any reason at all?" And and we, if if we pay attention to the New Testament, we see no recorded instances of polygamy in the New Testament. And so, that doesn't mean we we. We can't conclude from that that, that that there was no one in Israel practicing it in the time of Jesus, but we can at least infer strongly that it wasn't as prevalent as it had been, say, in the times of the patriarchs when people were living in small nomadic tribes, right? Um, that, that's almost for sure, right? W- w- why does that matter? <clears throat> what I'm saying to you is it stands to reason based on the fact that nobody popped up and said, hey, Jesus, what about polygamy, Right? that it wasn't a big enough issue in the time of Jesus for anyone to ask him about it. Because the things that were really on their mind that they were fired up about, somebody rolled up and said, hey, Jesus, what about this? Whether their intentions were really curiosity because they wanted to hear his answer, or they were trying to trip him up. Either way, we see those questions asked. Um, You know, maybe by the time of Jesus... uh, most everybody had figured out that one spouse is plenty to handle. <laughs> I don't know. Is that progressive revelation? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, good on them, you know? You guys are getting it. <laughs> Jeez. Love you, hon, wherever you're at. <laughs> but I don't want another one of you. <clears throat> and, and for those of you, those of you who are like, look, okay, yeah, but Jesus, you know, Jesus could have known that we were going to have big questions about it. He could have just said something, and it's frustrating we don't have a direct quote for him. I look, I yes, I'm with you, and I want you to know I've got I've got lots of those too, by the way. Like there's there's a lot of things I wish Jesus would have just directly laid out in long form and lots of detail because it would have saved us a lot of argument. For example, um, I, I really wish Jesus would have commented on the reality of that if. If you're going to hang a toilet paper roll, the sheets should be facing towards you and in a downward motion. Because then we could have totally avoid the insanity of anybody suggesting the other option. <laughs> I just can't get it. And Jesus could have, We could have never had to waste any time arguing about that. if he would have, Now, why didn't he do that? Well, it hadn't been invented yet. Um, and maybe he's trying to leave some room for conscience there. But... <sighs> It's a problem. Or I wish Jesus would have just come out and said, look, when the NASB Bible is released, that's the best one. <laughs> just go with that. It'll be 95, just wait. Use the other ones up till then, but once you get that, go for it. You know? A lot of debates could have, been, could have been solved. If you don't know me very well, those are both jokes. So here's what I want you to know. It's okay if you have a different Bible than the NASB, uh, as long as it's a good, faithful translation. And, uh, it, you know, if I come to your house for dinner, don't change all the toilet paper rolls around because you think I'm <laughs> going to think you're insane, all right? I don't care what you do. Um, <laughs> I mean, I care a little bit, but I'm not going to judge you harshly about it. I can, I can give grace for that. All right, so all of that, minus the little last part there, all the before that, that was kind of a thousand-foot principle overview Okay, so now in order to really deal with this properly, we're going to have to get into the nitty-gritty a little bit. But we've I've tried to set the table so that now we can we can digest a little bit what's coming, all right? So I would say perhaps the most common argument that comes from folks saying that the Bible condones polygamy or they're worried that the Bible condones polygamy because I've had that from both sides. I've had people come and say, "Man, it seems like the Bible's given the stamp of approval on polygamy and that makes me nervous." I've also had rarer occasions, but people coming and saying, hey, it looks like the Bible says polygamy is cool. Like, can I do it? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but, but um, the mo- what, probably the most common way either person comes is, is because of the examples of men who otherwise are called righteous by faith in the Old Testament having multiple wives. Okay, So how do we reconcile that? You go through, you know, go through the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11, or you just read your Old Testament, it's like Okay, we got people that seem to walk pretty closely with God, that God used in very uh, profound ways in, in his overall plan of redemption, and, and yet these guys had multiple wives, and we don't see any kind of lightning bolt smack down as a result. So how do we interpret that? Well, <clears throat> the first thing, and, and there was a question recently, the details are escaping me that I had to lay this out, so I'm going to do it quickly. The other thing I would say is if, in general, I'm staying way out of the tall weeds of like general principles about how we are able to interpret uh, commands and promises and and where they uh, pertain to us and or certain people in the Old Testament, because Pastor Andrew dealt with that at length a couple weeks ago, okay? So I'm not trying to traipse back over that terrain. If you want a more uh, holistic dealing with that, check that sermon out from a couple weeks ago, okay? Okay. Uh, my point is there's a lot more that could be said but I'm I'm kind of I'm going to build off of and just assume you've got the information he gave you. So but right off the bat it's very important always when we're reading the Bible and we're trying to extract and understand the truth that it's teaching to keep in mind the difference between a prescriptive and a descriptive text, okay? A prescriptive text says do this or don't do this period okay there's no no way to really wiggle around that a descriptive text is telling you what people did or didn't do but it doesn't necessarily sign off on that saying this is an example for you to follow or this is something for you to avoid so the bible is unique in that it even its heroes are not painted with these rose colored glasses as if they were somehow perfect right and we know of course that's because of the overall uh, idea of what god 's doing in the earth in terms of redemption and, and the gospel of grace he wants us to see that the point was never for humans to do a good enough job to earn righteousness on their own, but that they were going to have to come to him trusting by faith that they could be saved by grace okay so even the heroes have have issues right so that 's one thing so keep in mind prescriptive and descriptive but and you might say. <clears throat> okay, yeah, that's fine. That all sounds like a bunch of, you know, theology school stuff, man. Can we just talk about this practically? Like, that's fine. But if, if it's not giving permission by these examples of otherwise seemingly faithful people that God used in his plan of redemption, if, if it's not saying it's okay what they did having multiple wives, then where is the punishment, right? Like, if, if, even if we're going to learn from the example, we should see... If if God wasn't thrilled with that, or if that wasn't God's ideal from the beginning, then why don't we see God getting them? Right? The old lightning bolt. Well, he's not Zeus, first of all, so we need to get that out of our minds. But <laughs> secondly, um, okay, now I'm gonna answer that for you. And I'm gonna answer it starting with a question, okay? I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do it like my master does it sometimes. Uh I'm try to trip you up. Alright, so can <laughs> can anyone think of an example in the old testament where we're told that someone had multiple spouses and as a result they lived happily ever after? It's a real question that's open for anyone to let me just give you a clue though. You got one? S- say it louder for me. Oh yeah, and it went really bad for him. Yeah. And that's, what, that's a good point. And that shows kind of what we're talking about, because Solomon was known as the wisest man on the planet, possibly ever the richest man on the planet, a godly man that built the temple, did a bunch of stuff, God used him in a bunch of ways, had multiple wives. So people look at that and they're like, well, God was still using him. Isn't that God blessing what he was doing there with the multiple wives thing? But this, this is the point that I'm getting at. Uh, no, because Solomon... 1 Kings 11.4, we get this summary about that particular element of Solomon's life, okay? For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. It did not go well for him. Um, anybody know who the first... I know this is a bunch of pop, question, or pop quiz question Bible stuff, which is your favorite part of the show. Um, this should be the last one, I think. But does anybody know who the first occurrence of polygamy recorded in the scriptures is, other than Pastor Andrew or Pastor Jordan or their wives. No, but close. His name is Lamech. Lamech. You guys are like, who's Lamech? Yeah, great point. He's kind of a footnote. Um, <laughs> but here's, here's what you'll, here's what, if you go read about Lamech in Genesis 4, here's what you'll hear that Lamech, basically all we hear about him is that he bragged about, he was of the line of Cain, right? So Adam and Eve, Cain, Abel, Cain kills Abel, Cain has kids, down that line comes Lamech. What we hear about Lamech is he was bragging to his wives about having more vengeance and bloodlust and being more violent than his forebear Cain. That's the first example we have of polygamy in the Bible. So not an example we probably want to follow, okay? That's where it starts. That's the first one we get, but we can move through. And then we come to Abraham, okay? How'd it go for Abraham that he had Sarah his wife and that they couldn't conceive? And then it says there's a point where, and there's an echo here from Genesis, it says that Sarah had an idea, why don't you you take my servant Hagar also as a wife and see if she can conceive? And it's interesting because... As Moses writes that, he says that uh, Abraham listened to the voice of his wife, Sarah, which is, there's, a, there's an echo there from Adam listening to the voice of his wife, Eve, about the fruit. But there's, we'll get, this won't be a short sermon if I start unpacking that. So, <laughs> just interesting. Um, and so, what, well, what happens? Is it happily ever after? Well, they, they do that. They hatch that plan. Ishmael is conceived and chaos ensues. There's a bunch of pain and family tension Hagar and Ishmael end up getting sent out. Abraham's heart is grieved. There's a bunch of tension between Hagar and Sarah. It's, it gets ugly. It does not go well. It does not seem to be uh, God's best intention for the situation. You can move down the line to Jacob, who had Rachel and Leah. And you've got to give Jacob a little bit of a break because the brother worked all that time for Rachel. And then, you know, Laban sneaks Leah in there on the wedding night, kind of sets him up for the okey doke. So, because of that, He ends up with two wives. But again, how does that go? Not super good because uh, a bunch of the sons of Leah end up throwing one of the sons of Rachel in a pit and selling him into slavery into Egypt because of all the jealousy and the favoritism. Doesn't lead to a super healthy family dynamic. There is no happily ever after there. David, how did it go for him? He's a king, he can do whatever he wants, right? Should be fine. No, one of the half-brothers, so we get down to David's kids, one of the half-brothers killed another after he sinned against his sister sexually, and then that same brother staged a coup against David. There's this inter-family squabbling and tension and fighting, and it, it just goes bad. We already mentioned Solomon. He was going to be my next one. We already brought that up. <clears throat> so, I can't find any examples because I don't think there are any of somebody moving forward with this plan of of multiple spouses and it it ending up working real good. And so why was it recorded that way in the scriptures? What are we supposed to see from that? I would say maybe by the time of Jesus, people started to pick up the hint, which is why nobody asked him, hey, Jesus, what about polygamy? You know, like... That went bad for Abraham, it went bad for Jacob, it went bad for Solomon, it went bad for David. Okay, we're good. Now, here's what can be confusing about that, and we've, we've been stomping all over these principles ever since we were in the book of Ruth, but the truth about, we got to keep this in mind, yes, that did lead in every case that I can see to chaos and pain. The, the deviation from God's original design led to chaos and pain, but We got to remember and and keep in mind God's incredible ability to work for the good of his people and the fulfillment of his plans, sometimes even through the foolishness and rebellion of his people. If he wasn't able to do that, we'd be in in a lot of trouble. He saw our foolishness coming. He saw the rebellion coming and actually wove the totality of his plan of redemption taking those things into account. He wasn't surprised by any of it. That, to me is a very, very powerful God. Okay? Uh, we got to keep that in view as we're thinking about this because we could get the wrong idea if we understand things like um, David, not only a polygamist, but a murderer, brings Bathsheba in, uh, sins against her husband, sins against her, and then out of that sexual union comes Solomon. Because that can be really confusing. What, hold on, that, that was bad, but then well, why, why, is it, why is it such a big deal that Solomon came from that line? Well, if we head on down the genealogy steps a few generations, what you'll end up finding out is from that line comes Christ the Messiah. What do we do with that? I'm going to choose to end up super encouraged that when I screw stuff up, that God can fix it. <laughs> and bring really beautiful things out of the ashes of everything I light on fire with my stupidity. Amen. Everyone who's not amening really loud on that needs a little touch more self-awareness. Okay? Because... That's a really good promise, and I'm really glad he can work all things for the good of those. that yeah. We were in that last week, right? Romans 7, Paul, wretched man that I am. But then he goes into Romans 8, says there's no condemnation for those in Christ, and then he gets down around in the verses near, near 28 and, and starts to talk about here this truth. Take this on for size. I just talked about my own wickedness. Even though I belong to Christ, I'm still struggling with the remnant of sin, and it means I, I do things I don't want to do. But God can work all things, all things, even that for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Woo! Man, if, 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 there's, if, there's a, if there's a promised pony that I'm riding, it's that one. That's the one that's getting me to town, man. I'm telling you. I haven't even been out west lately and that's just the analogy that came off top of my head. I don't know. Do whatever with that. Okay, so that's kind of the biggest thing. That's the most common point of confusion people will have. Look at these examples in the Old Testament. What do we do with that? Well, hopefully I just showed you what to do with that. But this, this almost gets, it gets a little more nitty gritty than that. We've we got to push if we're going to have an honest conversation about this and say, does the Bible condone, condone polygamy in the Old Testament law itself? Not just the examples of patriarchs and others, but in the law Itself, We need to deal with that. Um, <clears throat> and let me say this. Th- there is no verse in the Bible that says explicitly, prescriptively, that no man should ever have more than one wife or vice versa. Okay, We don't see that as a broad prescriptive command for everybody. Uh, but we, we do see this instruction given to kings in Deuteronomy 17. It says this. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. That was something Solomon should have paid attention to. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Okay? So we do see that prohibition about given directly to leaders of Israel. We also see uh, a similar idea for the New Testament church in Timothy and Titus when we see the qualifications for elders, overseers, those that are supposed to shepherd the flock of God. We see that they're supposed to be the husband of one wife. And you might say, okay, well, that's fine. Uh, pastors don't get to have polyamorous relationships, but what about the rest of us? Well, there's a principle that, yes, it, in one way, there, there's, there's, there's kind of a key separating dividing line between the rest of the church and those that are called to oversee and shepherd the flock of God. And, and it's re- it really comes down to desire. Okay, because those qualifications that it talks about, being, being somebody that is above reproach and, is is the husband of one wife and and lives in obedience to God as a good example, those ideas trickle down to everybody that's in the body of Christ. Part of why elders and overseers are supposed to do that is so they can be an example to the flock according to 1 Peter for them to emulate as everybody's trying to emulate Jesus. Okay, so there's that. But um, there, there are some that have said, there's a couple of verses I'm going to read you. Uh, one's in Deuteronomy 21, one's in Leviticus 18. There are some that have said that they think these condone polygamy. Um, but I want us to keep in mind as I read these, keep in mind the words of Jesus in Matthew that we started with, that we're anchored from. And, and I think we'll be able to see that that's not the point. And even if you can't, I'll show you. All right, so here we go. This is the first one. Deuteronomy 21, starting in verse 15. If a man, if a man has two wives... The one loved and the other unloved. What's that sound like? Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, right? So we learned from the past. And both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, and the firstborn son belongs to the unloved. Then it shall be on the day that he wills what he owns as an inheritance to his sons. He is not allowed to treat the son of the loved wife as the firstborn at the expense of the son of the unloved, who actually is the firstborn son. Did you track with that? Basically, this is... This is actually not so much regulating polygamy as it is inheritance rules, right? So if there's favoritism, if the guy's got two wives and he favors one over the other, he can't, if his firstborn son came from the one he, who isn't his favorite, uh, he can't skip over that firstborn son and pick the one from the favored wife and treat him like, that's, uh, you know, like he doesn't exist. That would be uh, sinful and wrong. And it would, it would break the command for how things are supposed to pass down through family lines according to God. So, but, so does, just in reading that, that that regulation is in place, does, does that lead us to the conclusion that the Bible's condoning polygamy? Well, first thing I would say is if, if a man has two wives, if a man has two wives, not a man should have or even can have two wives. So the language of the command is if a man has two wives... Here's what you got to do in this situation. It doesn't say he should have or even can have. Um, and, and the law really is not condoning polygamy. What it is doing is it's acknowledging that the judges and the rulers of Israel at that time, they were going to have to deal with these cases because people were practicing it. Okay? It was happening. And so God, in that moment, had, had to give the people that were trying to wrangle Israel like a bunch of feral cats, right? Ways to deal with some of these particular issues. Uh, I think it's if, if you're looking at Deuteronomy, I would encourage you to do that. Go, go check it out later. Uh, 21, starting in verse 15. The next two commands, okay, they have to do with rebellious children and someone who commits a capital crime. And so we don't read those and say, oh, well, then the Bible's condoning rebellious children and capital crimes. Right? That's not the way we interpret that. But, but in, in kind of a weird way, we do it with the first one. So there's that. Um, and and <clears throat> that and this one in Leviticus, there's, there's an overall kind of interpretive principle I'm going to give you to help if you're not satisfied with that, which that's, it's fine if not, because I know this is kind of sticky, but okay. Leviticus 18 is the other one that I want to read to you. Okay. So it says, and you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Okay. So, so Jacob's situation uh, gave a lot of examples for once Mosaic Law came along. They, they really learned a lot from that whole debacle. Okay, but what, what do we see there? All right, It's saying a guy should not marry two sisters. All right, what is, it, what is it doing? Is it condoning polygamy? I don't think so. It's not condoning polygamy as a God-ordained practice. It's letting you know that if you go that route, if, if you're practicing that, at least don't be dumb enough to marry two sisters. Because you're going to get stabbed, bro, at some point. It's, it's probably going to go bad. You, you, are, you are choosing to live in a powder keg, okay? That's a bad idea. Um, and it's, it's going to lead to chaos. So now I could see how you, you could hear all of that and you're like, dude, that's weak, I, I'm, maybe, you're having, maybe we're mentally sparring right now, and that's fine. That's part of what this process should be like. It's, that's good. You might be thinking, look, dude, God prohibited murder and lying and adultery, okay? Why not polygamy? You're, you're, you're dancing here. You're trying, you're trying to stretch. Well, why, why couldn't he just prohibit polygamy the same way he did at the same time? He said lying's bad. He said murder's bad. He said adultery's bad. Well, if, if that's where you're at, I'm encouraged because that means you are actually logically following what's going on and, and you're doing a good job really thinking through this in a way that's going to help you if you're talking to someone else about it, because someone else may have these questions. So good job. But that, that point right there, that argument you just made, all right, I know I made it, but I'm assuming some of you have it. That's why we started with Jesus and his answer to divorce. That's why we started there. What did Jesus say? God permitted their custom as it it pertained to divorce. Why? Why did God permit it when he permitted it? What did Jesus say about it? Because of the hardness of their hearts. Because of the hardness of their hearts. It, It is clear that God waited until Jesus was on the scene to clarify his will, intent, and purpose as it pertained to marriage and divorce. For some reason, God did that, we, so we should ask why. Why did God do that? Why didn't he just spell it out in the Mosaic Law? Why did he wait for Jesus to be on the scene? And, and, and this, there's, gonna be, there's some circular reasoning coming here, but not in a bad way. <clears throat> this is also why earlier we made the point to stop and remember that Jesus is the clearest representation of God that mankind Ever had or ever will get. Remember, Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God. Remember that Hebrews says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It seems that God's intent and purpose for marriage is so deep and profound and mysterious and wonderful that we had no shot of grasping it without getting a view of the beautiful radiance of humble self-sacrificial love that only Jesus himself could provide. We, if he would have tried to just lay it out in the Old Testament law, nobody would have got it. Because without getting, a, without getting a look at Jesus, how do you even begin to understand the depth of covenant and the sacrificial love that comes along with that, that undergirds that? You can't, you won't have a shot. And we see... Well, throughout the scriptures, that God isn't a God that just tends to arbitrarily throw rules around. He does take the time to explain. He's not a God that just says, do this, the what. Many, many times, most of the time, he gives us the why. Because he loves us and he's a good father. So why did God allow divorce with a certificate or polygamy in the Old Testament? Well, Jesus clearly answered the divorce one, and I think polygamy goes in the same bucket. We weren't going to get it without Jesus. I think, Look, man, murder and lying, that's, that's pretty obvious, okay? Just, just basically because of the way that we're made in the image of God, those things, those things run counter to... There's something in us that realizes that's wrong. You'd be very hard-pressed to find a culture throughout human history that thinks cold-blooded murder... Whoever does cold-blooded murder good, that's our leader. Or whoever's the best liar, that's the guy we want to follow. Why? why? Why would you be very hard-pressed to find that? I know sometimes liars get in positions of leadership. Let's just leave that alone. But widely as a culture, is that what we're looking for? No, because we're made in the image of God. And his very character is life and truth, right? Right? But this, this is a little more detailed. It's a little more nuanced. It's, it's actually not as obvious. And we need Jesus' help to understand what God is doing in marriage. And that's why he uh, allowed what he allowed for divorce. And I think largely that the same goes for <clears throat> polygamy. Uh, it's pretty obvious why lying and murder are a problem. But when it comes to the true depth of God's intention for marriage, what... What is meant to be between, what it, what it is meant to be between a husband and a wife and what it is meant to reflect to the world and how, how precious a gift and how monumental a responsibility it truly is. When you, when you take all of that into account, Christ and his gospel are our only shot to even begin to grasp it. We can't even begin to try to grapple with the depth of what God is doing in covenant marriage without a look at the Savior and a look at his gospel. And, and we see this truth in the way Paul talks about marriage in Ephesians 5, okay? He, he makes this, he connects these dots. It says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are parts of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What? This, this miracle thing that happens in, in the covenant connection of marriage from God's perspective, there's two people becoming one flesh? Paul draws a direct parallel between that and how there's covenant between Christ and the church, man. This this is too deep to get. It's too wonderful. It's too based upon, self-sacrificial, God-shaped love. There's the fullness of of what we're even shooting for when it comes to marriage from God's perspective. We were never going to understand without getting a look at Jesus. You see, friends, Jesus shook up a lot of things when he got on the scene. You guys remember when, when he started cracking off on them with all the you've heard it said, but I say statements? You remember that? You know the ones like, well, you guys have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And doesn't that make sense at one level? Like if, if we've been saved a long time and, and, and the Holy Spirit's really worked on us and, and, and pulled the poison of that kind of thinking out of us, we may have to reach back to remember. But I don't know what this says about me, but I can still remember real easy how much sense eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth makes. I'm just trying to tell you right now. That makes more logical sense than what Jesus said. But I, so you've heard it said eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but what, I, what I'm telling you to do is to turn the other cheek. Someone compels you to go a mile, go two. Someone tries to take your tunic, and give them your cloak. What? That does not make any sense. You punch me in the face, I punch you in the face. That makes total sense. <laughs> that is Logically, that makes total sense. You punch me in the face, and I go, <clears throat> that does not make total sense to me. Now, because of the love of God shown forth in the life and death of Christ, I, I'm, I'm at least starting to get it. Jesus shook stuff up. It wasn't just that statement. Uh, he made one that's maybe even wilder. He said, uh, you, you've heard it said to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. And he said, no, love your enemy as well. What? Pray for them that persecute you. That's That sounds like nonsense. Can you reach back? I know some of you, you guys are so holy and so sanctified that you just... You know, all you can relate to is what Jesus taught about this. Well, I would never seek vengeance. And I always pray for those who persecute me. That's my first response. (laughs) As you adjust your halo. I know I'm asking you to really reach here. Back into the darkness of your previous memories. But (laughs) (laughs) this, um, it, it runs across the grain of what comes naturally. Of our basic human instinct. The sin nature in us uh, how can we possibly do that it, we can 't do any of these things we, we can't we can 't move towards god 's picture and purpose for for marriage we can 't love our enemies we, we can't refrain from seeking vengeance against those that try to do us harm we can 't do any of that until you see the Son of God through whom all things have been made and and all things were made for him. The holy one, the sinless one, we can't do any of that until we see him die upon a cross for those by the way who committed cosmic treason against him and declared themselves his enemy with their rebellion. The only way we can begin to even get close to any of this is to set our eyes upon the perfect one dying for those who were the reason he had to do it. All the way down to the The very reality of him using some of his last breaths to ask specifically for forgiveness of the ones who had nailed him there. Not some broad sense, Lord, please forgive humanity. Forgive those guys that just got done nailing me to this rough piece of wood. (laughs) That is where we start. And it shakes us and it rocks every paradigm with which we would interpret how to move through the world. There's no way without the gospel we could start to do any of this. The gospel is the only way we can understand the depth of covenant. Most of us, most of us left to our own devices, we would stay much closer to a kind of contract idea for what marriage should look like. Very much, much closer to an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? You do your part and I'll do my part. If you don't do your part, there's consequences. Whereas in covenant, we see something bewildering and and almost, it it seems almost impossible if we hadn't already seen Jesus go first. I'm gonna do my part whether you do your part or not. As a matter of fact, I'm certain you're not gonna do your part and I'm gonna do my part. (sighs) Wow. That sets you up. Sets you up for being able to start to understand what God means by covenant marriage. And it would affect the way you would answer the question about polygamy. Wouldn't it? The gospel is a foundation-shaking, paradigm-shifting, world-changing truth. And it's the only light by which we can possibly find our way into the fullness of what God has for us in all areas of our life. And that includes, of course, marriage. God's intent was for a man and a woman to commit to each other in the kind of covenant love that we can never hope to understand without the example of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And here's the thing. Understanding it, understanding it is only half the battle. Because without the Holy Spirit living inside of us to help guide and correct, we don't even have the slimmest chance of walking this out. And so why does it seem like, why why could you say, well, it looks like God changed his mind when Jesus came and taught what he taught on divorce. Or it seems like Jesus changed his mind when he reached back to the creative order to to anchor our understanding of how God sees the purpose and and the design for marriage. Because all that polygamy was back there and it didn't seem like God was doing anything about it. And and he said divorce could be done with a certificate back then. It seems like he changed his mind in the New Testament, friends. What I'm trying to say to you is, I don't think God changed his mind at all. I think his original intent and purpose was always the same. I think the only shot we have for even beginning to understand the depth and beauty and the mystery of what God is doing in covenant marriage, not only understand it, but be able to walk it out, came from the example of Christ and then him knowing as Christ dies on the cross and rises from the grave and then ascends that he's going to send his Holy Spirit to be able to help us walk it out. It would have been almost cruel to put these standards on someone back in the time of Moses, knowing we're thousands of years away from Jesus coming on the scene to show us what God's talking about and him being able to give us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a gift. Amen. But here we are, blessed as we are, on the side of history that we find ourselves. Able to see the full example of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, his teachings. Able to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. So we get to enjoy the fullness of God's purpose in these things. Amen. Praise the Lord. The full picture of the love of God burst forth with radiant splendor in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We see because of that that he loves sinners like us with such fierce passion like that. And because of that, it should change the way we see absolutely everything. It should change the way we interpret, the lenses we wear for interpreting everything. And if you're here today and you have yet to see the world through this gospel lens I'm describing, I I sincerely pray that you will today. It's God's will for you. And if you have, if you do have those lenses, then I pray you'll live every single part of your life in light of it. I pray all of that for God's glory and for our good. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, thank you. Uh, Thank you for allowing us to do this series. Thank you for the questions it brings and the way it stretches us, the way it uh, causes us to really pay attention to how it is we come to your scriptures and we interpret what's there and we mine and, and, and search for truth. And so I just thank you for your help in that. Uh, and I thank you, Lord, for the revelation of Jesus. Thank you for sending Jesus just like you said you would. Lord, please help us as your people to, um, to stay on your side. Help us to, when, when we encounter things in your scriptures, it's hard for us to understand, or it seems like you're being inconsistent, or, or maybe something you've done would, would cause us to think you're untrustworthy. Lord, help us, help us to anchor where we're going to stand and how we think about you. Help us to anchor it in the fact that you promised a Savior, a Messiah was coming. You started that promise all the way back in Genesis 3, and you kept showing us that a Savior was coming. You kept showing us you were sending an answer to the problem of sin, and then Jesus came. You made the biggest promise and kept the biggest promise anyone ever could. And so when we find ourselves feeling like we're on shaky ground, help us to anchor ourselves to that. Lord, if you can do that, if you can keep that promise, Lord, there's there's nothing you can't do. And it it shows us who you are. It shows us your trustworthiness and your character. And so, Lord, we need your help in that. Um, Please help us to live out these things as, as your followers, but also we ask you to prepare us and help us to have conversations about these difficult things with those maybe that have yet to see, yet to understand how worthy you are to be worshiped. God, help us never to come from some place of of moral superiority or self-righteousness, Lord, please always remind us, we're beggars that found bread and we just wanna share it with others. Please keep us there for your glory, Lord, and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies